Sarkar, dear friends, thank you for that introduction. As you can see, he's biased. He's a friend. So thank you also for asking me to deliver the Sardar Patel Memorial Lecture this year because it's no easy task to speak in memory of the man who literally created the Indian Union as we know it today. Sardar Patel was a giant in more senses than one. He reunited an India that was riven by the British after partition and independence when that task seemed almost impossible to his contemporaries. He created and set standards for party organization that everyone claims and strives for, but nobody has really matched ever since. He laid the foundations for the modern Indian civil service under democracy. And unlike his imitators and those who would claim his legacy, he worked tirelessly and successfully for communal harmony in the midst of the horrors of partition. Let me recount just one incident from 1947. At Amritsar on 30th September 1947, when refugees were being killed on both sides of the border, Patel spoke ex tempo to the public to try and restore calm and prevent revenge killings of Muslim refugees who were trying to go to Pakistan. And in one of the greatest speeches of his life, he said, and I quote, I'll quote extensively actually, here in the same city, the blood of Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims mingled in the bloodbath of Jallianwala Bagh. I am grieved to think that things have come to such a pass that no Muslim can go about in Amritsar and no Hindu or Sikh can even think of living in Lahore. The butchery of innocent and defenseless men, women and children does not behove brave men. I am quite certain that India's interest lies in getting all her men and women across the border and sending out all Muslims from East Punjab. I have come to you with a specific appeal. Pledge the safety of Muslim refugees crossing the city. Any obstacles or hindrances will only worsen the plight of our refugees who are already performing prodigious feats of endurance. If we have to fight, we must fight clean. Such a fight must await an appropriate time and conditions, and you must be watchful in choosing your ground. To fight against refugees is no fight at all. No laws of humanity or war among honorable men permit the murder of people who have sought shelter and protection. Let there be truce for three months in which both sides can exchange their refugees. This sort of truce is permitted even by laws of war. Let us take the initiative in breaking this vicious circle of attacks and counterattacks. Hold your hands for a week and see what happens. Make way for the refugees with your own force of volunteers and let them deliver the refugees safely at our frontiers. Following this and his dialogue with the community leaders, no further attacks occurred against Muslim refugees in Amritsar and a wider peace and order was soon re-established over the entire area. This is vintage Patel. 
showing courage and bravery in the face of high and hostile emotions, using reason, self-interest, and real politic in his argument, and achieving the impossible. Most of all, for me, his integrity shines through. His intellectual honesty, no false promises, and no emotion other than patriotism. One man in a position of authority standing for what he considers right against the tide of popular emotion. No wonder when he died in Mumbai on 15 December 1950, in a gesture never repeated before or after, a thousand five hundred civil servants gathered at his home in Delhi at one Aurangzeb Road to pledge to work for the nation as he had done. It was the same integrity and clarity that Patel displayed in his understanding of the world and India's place in it. He was clear that it is primarily our internal strength that we must rely on to navigate the complex international situation. In retrospect, his support for total non-cooperation with the British when World War II broke out, unless they promised full independence to India after the war, was the correct choice. This was when the socialists and the communists were confused by the Nazi-Soviet pact and when Subhash Bose wanted an alliance with Japan. In 1942, Patel organized and sustained what the then Viceroy called the most serious rebellion since 1857. He was prescient in his opposition to taking the Kashmir issue to the UN, in his views on responses to the Chinese PLA taking Tibet, on liberating Goa by force, and on Hyderabad. Over time, we have come to realize the wisdom of what he said, and in effect, we have followed his advice, albeit sometimes a little late. In each of these instances, Patel was a realist, who understood the balance of forces and placed little reliance on international understandings or institutions. But unlike present-day Kautilyas and Machiavellis who try and claim him as their own, Patel's was a realism tempered by principle and integrity. He had confidence in ourselves and the ambition to try, all based on his strong patriotism, not chauvinism. Preparing for this lecture, I couldn't help but wonder whether we still display these characteristics today in our dealings with the world. Of course, Patel was a rarity even in his own time, a time that seems in retrospect to have been a time of giants, of great leaders, of vision and outstanding capability. But it may be worth seeing how Patel would react to and deal with today's world. Let's consider how and why India deals with the world today and try and answer this question if we can. So why does India deal with the world today? The main reason we deal with the world is because the world is essential to our quest to transform India. In history, India has flourished and her people have been most prosperous when she was most open and linked to the rest of the world. You have only to think of periods of great Indian achievement in the economy, in science, in culture. You think of the Mauryas, the Guptas, the Cholas, the Mughals. Each of their realms was intimately connected with the rest of the world, not just in trade, but in the spread of ideas, religion, and science. The opposite case also proves the proposition. Under the British Empire, 
India's links with the world were progressively whittled down to a supplier of raw materials and of coolie labor. India was deindustrialized, and the result was 50 years of zero growth before 1950. Mass hunger, famine, disease, and poverty. In 200 years, one of the most advanced and prosperous societies on earth had been made into one of its poorest and most backward societies. After independence as well, India has grown most rapidly since she opened up to the outside world again after 1991. India has been a major beneficiary of the open, interdependent world economy of the two decades before the world economic crisis of 2007-8. The role of foreign markets, capital and technology in enabling us to develop India is growing. We are not members of an effective regional economic integration organization or of open market arrangements in our region. Our interest is therefore in keeping the international economic system open without protectionist distortions while democratizing international decision-making. We now measure ourselves against international standards and benchmarks in an ever-growing number of areas. Our diplomats had to be world-class from the beginning since they dealt with the best the world put forward, and they did so successfully against great odds. The economy, particularly firms and services, had to measure up to world standards if they were to compete after 1991. We now need to do the same in governance, particularly in spheres that directly affect the common man, like policing. In today's world, there's no going back to absolute self-reliance, to autarky, or to disengaging from the world. They are simply not in India's interest. India may be unique, but exceptionalism in foreign policy has its limits. It's limited by our ever-growing linkages with the world, politically, economically, socially, and in terms of security. From a little over 18% of our GDP being linked to the external sector in 1991, we are now at over 40% and rising. As the effects on our economy of the world economic crisis from 2008 onwards showed, we are not and cannot be decoupled from the world. Terrorism and cybersecurity also recognize no national frontiers. There is, of course, a vast difference between the world Patel knew and what we now see. The bipolar world with two overwhelmingly powerful superpowers of European superiority, colonial mastery, that is now history, long gone, unlamented, and changed much for the better. Today we are in a world of many powers, and power itself is much more evenly distributed through the international system, even though still lumpy. Last year, more than half the growth in the world economy came from emerging economies like India and China. We have seen the limits of traditional military force and power in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. India, too, is very different from Patel's time. We have industrialized, though not as quickly and extensively as all of us may wish. We are self-sufficient in food, and widespread famine is a thing of the past. 
The average Indian who lived for 26 years when Patel passed away now lives for well over 65 years. And India has an international voice and presence derived from our economic significance and our willingness to accumulate and, when necessary, use the instruments of state power in the army, nuclear weapons, and in other areas. We have gathered expertise and experience and we have active media and public involvement in policy, which was absent in the 40s and 50s. But with all these achievements and improvements in our strength, do we display the confidence and the ambition that Patel did? I am afraid that not all of us do. When 40 self-styled experts and some political groups say do not talk to Pakistan until ideal conditions exist and all terrorism stops. It betrays a lack of self-confidence. That is precisely what the terrorists and their sponsors in the Pakistani establishment want us to do, for us not to talk to those in Pakistan who might differ from them. Our Pakistan policy still faces the dilemmas that Patel's generation faced of how to prevent the enemies of India from having their way. Patel's answer was clear, as you saw from his Amritsar speech. Fight your enemies at a time and place of your choosing, but do not make innocents, the people, or refugees, in that specific case, the victims of your policy. That is precisely what successive Indian governments under Atal Bihari Vajpayee and Manmohan Singh have done. Not talking does not change the behavior of our enemies. In fact, it hands them a success which only encourages them. At the very least, talking to the saner elements in Pakistan could encourage them to stand for the right policies and could create confusion among our enemies. Today, in effect, we follow Patel's prescription against taking the Kashmir issue to the UN, and we have been successful in preventing international meddling in what is our internal affair. As for Pakistan, she is committed, no matter how reluctantly, since the Simla Agreement of 1972, to deal with us bilaterally on all issues, as was Patel's preference. And we will hold her to that. Our enemies in Pakistan have thrown every possible sort of barbarous terrorist act at us since the 80s. They are today suffering from the monster that they created. Precisely these years have been the years when India has made the most progress in transforming herself, and I dare say that Patel would have been proud of those achievements. In the unfinished business that remains in our dealings with our neighbors that Patel expressed his views on, whether it's the China boundary, Kashmir, Pakistan, or our people abroad, we can now engage the world from a much stronger position than in Patel's day. That was his core message, that it was from strength that one had to negotiate, not just talk about the issues. But at the same time, as his own example shows, he did not wait for ideal situations and conditions in order to engage. We can do no better than to follow Patel's own example in this, doing as Patel did. The matter of our dealings with China is more complex. You must all be aware of Patel's letter to Nehru of 7th November 1950. It bears rereading in full today. The letter is worth reading again for the clear-headed appraisal that it makes of the situation 
and for the series of practical steps that it suggests in response to the Chinese PLA entering Tibet. It is his practical suggestions for domestic responses that are as valid today as they were then, even as the international situation has changed and events have moved on. What Patel sought was a review of our long-term defense needs and, I quote, political and administrative steps to strengthen our northern and northeastern frontiers, measures of internal security in the border areas, improvement of communications in these areas and with frontier outposts, and a strengthening of the policing and intelligence of frontier posts, unquote. Notice that these are all designed to strengthen India. This is indeed still our agenda, and it is precisely in these areas that we have made progress in the last decade, more, I dare say, than in any single decade before this one. One and a half months after writing this letter, Patel passed away. The discussion on these issues, which was to take place with Prime Minister Nehru, never did. One of the fascinating what-if questions in our history is the course that events would have taken with China if we had acted with sufficient vigor on Patel's suggestions when they were made. The China border has been relatively peaceful after 1962 for a reason. We are careful to maintain an equilibrium or to prevent the emergence of an imbalance and to create a political context in which neither side finds the costs of changing the status quo attractive. For a decade and a half after 1962, both sides were internally preoccupied and gradually attempted to build border management capacity well within the line of actual control without changing the actual situation on the ground. During Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi's 1988 visit to China, we agreed to maintain the status quo on the border, to negotiate a solution to the boundary question, and not to allow the unsettled boundary question to prevent the development of other relations and exchanges. In 1993, the Border Peace and Tranquility Agreement committed both countries to maintaining the status quo on the LAC and to the principle of mutual and equal security. We have also made progress in our discussions on a boundary settlement by agreeing the guiding principles and political parameters for such a settlement in 2005. Since 1988, we have built a broader relationship with China. China is our largest trading partner in goods. Over 10,000 Indians study in China, and we work together on international issues like climate change where we have similar interests. Today, both India and China have a different position in the international community and have a multifaceted bilateral relationship which includes elements of cooperation and competition. There are certainly issues between us, as there will be between two neighbors who are growing and changing so rapidly. We try to maintain the dynamic equilibrium in the relationship needed for peace, stability, and predictability. And so far, we have managed to do so successfully. In terms of our overall security, which Patel dealt with as independent India's first Home Minister, we face a very complex set of challenges, most of them internal and many of them undreamt of in Patel's time. 
we are better off in the sense that the threats that Patel's generation faced were of an existential nature. Until the mid-60s, it could still be respectably asked in the world whether India would break up or continue to exist as a United State. We of our generation are fortunate that the India that Patel and his generation built is strong enough that we do not face such questions anymore. What we do face are threats to our interests, not to our existence as a state and nation. And these threats, some of them are in new domains, such as cyberspace, and we face a world of growing uncertainty. We are now learning how to counter terrorism. We may have improved our food security beyond the imaginings of that generation, but we now have to worry about our energy security, water security, and resources availability for a population with growing needs and aspirations. In one area that was only incipient in Patel's time, that of nuclear weapons, we have actually greatly improved our situation. During the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we faced explicit or implicit nuclear threats on several occasions designed to change our foreign policy course. Fortunately, our leaders at the time were strong-willed and refused to be deflected. Since we tested and declared our nuclear weapons in 1998, we have not faced any such threats of nuclear blackmail. In areas of security that were not conceived of in his time, Patel is a useful example of how to approach these problems of open-mindedness and of the mindsets that we need to cultivate and encourage. Take cybersecurity, for instance. So many of us now use smartphones, laptops, computers which are connected to the Internet. We know that these are attacked, either for the purpose of disabling them or of stealing data or, in more serious cases, for espionage, to damage critical infrastructure like pipelines or for terrorist financing communications and recruitment. The answer is not to build walls and forts and hide behind them. In these domains where technology changes so rapidly and gives the offense new advantages every day and where the speed of attack is almost the speed of light, there is little distinction between offense and defense. Of course, we defend and build our walls in India, but we also look for offensive solutions to deter attack and raise the cost to an attacker or to guarantee retribution. So if I were to look back on Patel's life. For me, the most important lesson that we can draw from him today is that we must dare to be ambitious, confident, and try for the best outcomes for India. What Gandhiji was for our moral compass, Patel was for our national security calculus. And these are not contradictory, for Patel was a good Gandhian. I still hope that those who are so quick to claim Patel's mantle but who fail to do him justice and actually diminish and distort him will learn this lesson. India's policies abroad cannot be decided by emotion or sentiment, no matter how noble or appealing, especially in times of crisis and uncertainty abroad. And most important, they should share his faith in India, in Indians and in our capabilities which have brought us so far since Patel's time. 
Far-sighted Indian administrations have drawn the right conclusions and followed such a policy, whether under Mrs. Indira Gandhi, under Atal Bihari Vajpayee, or Manmohan Singh. And that is the attitude that we must carry forward. It has brought us thus far with success, measured in terms of outcomes and results, not the passing daily mood or headlines or tweets. If we are to transform India, a realist or Patelist engagement with the rest of the world is what we must implement. Engaging the world from strength while recognizing reality for what it is, forswearing hubris and belligerence. India's integrity, strengthening and transformation require nothing less. We need some of Patel's realist policy and ambition if we are to succeed in our historic task and transform India. Thank you.